It's the after show. Oh, the, the after show. The after show. The after show. The after show. This is going to be the beginning of our show. This is the first after show, and we have no music, so uh, that was music. But we're, we're back on. Uh, this is the first after show for the Cigar Authority. And with us is the guys from Romacraft, Mike Rosales and Skip Martin. And we're here with a big audience. These people are from where, Skip? Uh, a lot of places. Uh, the Cigar but Cartel. It is the, it's Cigar Cartel. We got, we got some Philly guys, some Syracuse guys. But, uh, uh, we had a guy drove up from New Jersey. Yeah. Where it, where is their hookup though? Is it Cigar Cartel where they all or degenerate weasels? Does that degenerate weasels? Yes, degenerate. degenerate weasels. Social media. Yeah, yeah I think so. Cin- Cindy Sock is here. Yes, she's our biggest fan. I think. Yeah, she is. She's smoking one of your cigars. <laughs> it's awesome. She and that, and that's, a, that's a big thing with cigar, cigar people. I mean, their camaraderie, even amongst competitors. Yeah. Yeah, last, some of them, not a hundred percent. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Steve posted something on Facebook, and I and I had this really crude response, and then um, and then I saw that Cindy responded to the thread. Now, my first thought was, "Oh my God, Cindy just read what I wrote," and then and then I went to the thread, and Steve had had deleted the the thing that I that I had written, and then he he wrote, "Well, good thing you didn't see the thing that Skip just wrote," and, and my first thought was, "Oh, I'm so glad Steve deleted." Nice. <laughs> He was I was to, so embarrassed. He he deleted the whole thread? He deleted my comment because it was completely crude. Okay. So I'm glad Cindy didn't have to read that. Wow. Well, going back to this, I mean, I think one of the things that, that – so we engage on social media, right? Yeah. So whenever someone posts something or they say something, for the most part, it's, it's Skip or I or Danny or somebody in the office that – John even that, – that will respond and engage at the consumer level, right? So um, some of the challenges, like whenever people have a um, – a private lounge, for example, like if this was a, hey, you got to pay to be in this group. What ends up happening in those kind of social aspects is there's guys who've been there you know, for a long time that feel like they kind of control or have ownership of the lounge. And, and there's really, you know, introducing someone new into that group is really, really hard, right? So um, kind of what we've done from a social aspect is, is, is kind of created our own kind of groups and, and kind of meet with them at, at lounges or, or public places or, you know, bar places or, you know, and, and really kind of, you know, break bread with other guys and, and really create a community within the community. So especially you traveling as much as you do from sure. state to state, yeah. you let them know, I'm oh, I'm going to this state. Right. I'm going to, by 6 Let's o'clock, I should end up here. here. Right, yeah. But there's some dangers to that. I mean, somebody brought you uh, a safety whistle. Yeah, well, you know, you got to – we have John here for security. Yeah. I mean, how, how I really got into to this side of the business is my shop was hit by a hurricane, and I was really depressed. And, and, but the thing that I figured, I wasn't really upset about the money I lost and all that. What I was really depressed about was I missed the ritual of walking into the store and making sure everything was correct and yeah. interacting with all the guys and all the relationships that I had, all the things you've been doing for decades. Yeah. Right? And so Twitter was available to me to, to continue that kind of wow. relationship with, with all my friends. And I found new relationships. And really, that's how we launched our our company is by creating a cigar that sold really well to those guys who were my friends. Yeah. So it, it's as much is what feeds us energy as it is a, a job. You, you can't really outsource social media. If you try to get somebody to do it for you or some team, you're really missing the, well, they can't answer. Yeah. What, what and it's question. not even the cigar business stuff. It's yeah. like, um, when, when one of our guys that we're friends with has a kid, we try to make them little Roma onesies 
or or and send them some diapers or or when um somebody gets married we try to we I'll try trade, to do yeah. something for people okay. fair enough but we um you know it, <laughs> it's it's more it's more about having I'll the, trade a firecracker for uh, an intemperance any day did you get one of these John like I don't think I've ever met Tim uh, Tim came up from New Jersey. But as soon as he said his name was Tim Minty, I'm like, okay, I know. And then like five or six things, I, I know sure. him, even yeah. though I'd never met him. And so that's what I love about it. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Ed Sullivan, you see over here, back in the older days with ASC. Do you ever hear of that? Yeah. I was, uh, and that, in fact, that's where I met Steve Saka. I used to... Were you there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would kind of like, uh, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, is I would kind of uh, 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 ferment arguments about yeah, things. Yeah, you're perfect. <laughs> that's a shock. But uh, That's what, how I know Ed what's, and, and Steve. What's yeah. funny about that is Google purchased all those forums. So if you go to Google, um, you can go back and look at all those old forums. You could type in Steve Saka, and you could pull up every stupid thing Steve said 25 <laughs> years ago. And, and do I do, do that. that? Yeah. I do that on a regular basis. Uh, he'll, he'll say something. I'm like, well, let me double check what you felt about that. In the 90s, right? So, so he's been trying for years to figure out what my handle was on that. So he could figure out which comments were me. And I, it's like a top secret ah, locked in the vault. You want to just say it on the podcast? Because I said some really stupid stuff. <laughs> like I didn't know anything about anything. I mean, I was 20 years old and. He was the king of it then. Yeah. I'll tell you that, right, Ed? Boondoggle. Yeah. Well, I was in the Navy at the time, and Steve was a veteran. So, yeah, from the Navy, right? Yeah, and he had just. just left the Navy, and so there was a lot of things he said that I really connected to. So, Plus, there were guys like Tony Barani was real active on there, and yeah. who knew what he was going to say? Dude. He was... Dave was active on there till he got chased out with pitchforks and torches. Yeah, I pitched and something, and they all went after me. And Steve <laughs> came to my rescue, to be honest with you. I mean, and then it stopped because I was getting bashed of, how dare you <laughs> say you have Glory Kumana cigars. They came in. I thought I was doing something nice. Everybody was looking. Where can we find these? And I just received an order in. Right. And I said, oh, we just got a whole bunch like, in. And, yeah. oh, my God, it was, yeah, exactly. I might as well kill somebody. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, I could have sold them in two seconds. I thought I was doing something nice. And, uh, oh, no, you, could, you couldn't pitch at all. You know, there was not, none of that. What, what was really great is Steve wasn't involved in the business back then. So he was just a consumer. So he was ruthless. Yeah. Ruthless. Savage. And... Uh, so, you know, he, he, we, we have this conversation all the time. Like, when he retires from making cigars, he's just going to start a blog and just do that again. And I can't wait for how that. How is that any different than how he is in real <laughs> Man, life? Man, it's oh. a whole other level. It, it is he's another level. He's pretty ruthless now. And there, there are many in the business who have never forgotten that. Right. We won't mention Marvin Shankin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We won't mention Marvin yeah. Shankin. <laughs> <laughs> who never forgave him. No. Who never forgave him. Uh, it was brutal. It was you know, and why bring my mother into this? I don't know. I mean, no, these people it, went after everybody. Steve was just like on his game. He knew it better than any other. Because yeah. consumers now are so much more informed than we were back then. But Steve was visiting factories. Yeah. He, you know, mm -hmm. like you say, you made the, make this here, but I saw the boxes here. Like he was, he was like the only legit. consumer. I ever took to a trade show because you know you, you, up until next year it was never allowed and it was really poo. I sat on the board of directors and you know you don't do that you don't bring consumer in but he was so into it and said can you get me in is there any way and I said all right and he went in as a, with a two guy smoke shop badge as a consumer but he wanted in so bad and I said I gotta do this for this guy and he walked right. into his first trade show like that. Yeah, Cigar Nexus was huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah after, after the... Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, we got a, a big audience who's at, asking a lot of questions. Um, so I'll, uh, one of them is Bo, which is one of your stalkers, right? The reason you right? have the rape whistle, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Bo, Bo has a Weasel Team 6 license plate. Yes. He's a super fan. So, so is he the biggest stalker? The, you know, you, you got guys out there that you're actually a little concerned that, you know, if you heard something, it, it could be him. I wouldn't say necessarily <clears throat> concerned. For example, we have this guy, Lex Theory, on Instagram. Um, he lives in Connecticut. Uh, I did an event at Famous. He went to that. I did an event at B&B. He showed up to that. So he's traveled uh, quite. Super like, fans. He, super fans, right? The ones that scare me are the ones that lurk, and they never say anything. And they read everything you do. So, like, you meet them somewhere, and they go, "Hey, how was your uh, dinner last week? Your vacation? How's Fiorella? How's the, <laughs> you know, did how was your colonoscopy? How did that go?" And you're like, yeah. "Oh, wait a second. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't even know this guy, and he knows, like, you know, I need LifeLock or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah, Dave, were you concerned when people were coming up to us saying, "I know your voice"? So, yeah, last week, uh, me, me and Ed went to Orlando because we went to a podcast convention, and it, you know, they don't know who we are and went up and Ed spoke. And then the next thing you know, we sat down and somebody came over and said, are you Ed Sullivan? He's like, yeah. And then he says, so you're David Garofalo. And he says, Ed, I, I don't know what you look like, but this is Dave. And I'm, you know, we're like, what's going on here or something? Just, oh, I listen to the show every week. And then, and we went there for a few days and it was more and more and more as it went on. Yeah, we, we were getting concerned, yeah. so we came home. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, where are we going tonight, Dave? Let's go back to where they love us. <laughs> no, but it, it's, it's nice, but then it's like how, you know, you don't know me, but. Well, right. the, yeah, the level of detail that we feel comfortable putting on social media, because even on social media, you kind of have your core group of 100 or so followers. where Five, it's like 5,000. Yeah. Yeah. But but it's not it's not five thousand people that you interact with. You may be friends with them on right. Facebook, but there's a hundred, maybe one hundred fifty people that you interact with all the time, and you give them a personal detail. Well, here on the show, we're not interacting with people. It's a right. one way conversation, and we say things about each other and about ourselves, and it gets out there and it sticks with people. They remember I mean, it, yeah. And then the the recall is almost perfect. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a little unsettling at first. Anyway, Bo's asking, uh, what's involved in the year-long blending process? Year-long? Sometimes longer. I mean, Neanderthal, really? Neanderthal took about four years. In fact, Cro-Magnon was going to be Neanderthal, but it wasn't strong enough. Um, so, you know, as a lifelong cigar smoker, I have a whole list of things that I would love to learn about. And um, working with Cameroon, for example, was one of those things. It's hard to get a good African Cameroon, um, and it's, you know, we used Cameroon for the binder on our Cro-Magnon Aquitaine, but uh, getting the wrapper result is very hard. And it's expensive. And it's very expensive. And um, the level of skill you have to be at to work with it, I think, is a lot higher. That's why you don't see. I mean, nobody, I don't think, is ever going to replicate the level of work like Carlos Fuentes doing with, with it. But um, another company approached us to do something. Uh, I was going to do it as a personal favor to Jack Tarano. I was going to make the 1916 Cameroon as a limited edition because I wanted to work with that tobacco, and they have a lot of it from the old Partagas 150. Sure. They have a uh, – Benjamin Endes showed me this stack of bales of this beautiful 20-year-old Cameroon, and I'm like, I want to work with that. Um, so we started that process, and it didn't really work out, but – once I was already into it, I'm like, well, we got to keep going. So then we kind of switched it over instead of trying to replicate an old thing, trying to make our new thing. And so 
the process generally starts with because you already know the components. It's like you already know all the notes, and and you start thinking, okay, what do I want this piece to to feel like and taste like? Uh, like Mike was saying earlier about mm. the brand fill and everything, and then you start putting things together. Um, you know, when people say it takes a hundred blends to get to the right one. That's that's either BS or they don't know tobacco. Well, you could nail it. I mean, yeah, and that happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, but it, it's really more once you've got the components down, you go back to this high, medium, lows, and, and the construction issues or the aroma, and you go, this thing's not working, but I know it's this that's making that not work. Let's substitute something else. Some of it has to be guesswork in the respect that you put these together. You got to let it dry out a bit. You got to yeah. say, is it going to get better when it's going to age it? You that, know? Ha- that happens. Um, there is a di- plus tasting it in um, Esteli. It tastes different than it tastes when you're in Austin. Um, I think I'm, I'm feeling a certain thing. You know, for us, blending is a really collaborative process. So Esteban and I will get it in the general area. And then we'll have four or five options, and then we kind of bring it into the team and say, you know, what do you guys think about this? You know, sometimes what they don't like about it is what we do like about it. But generally, almost always land on a consensus. If we don't, sometimes the project just goes back on the shelf until something strikes you one day in your subconscious, and you go, wait, I'm going to try this on that. And then you go back at it. So, so is there lots of notes? I mean, there's a book of notes of this, this, this. I think everybody has their own process. Uh Esteban has a notebook where he has blends from, I don't know, 30 years. It's like a Looney Tunes notebook. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous looking. But it, he's got you know every CAO, Gurkha, Newman, uh, Taranio, all those cigars he worked on over the years. Well, great to have him, and it's a good lead up to the next question that Ed Ryan writes, does Esteban have an apprentice that will carry on his methods for the next generation? Very important. How old is he now? Uh, he's a little bit younger than me. He's, oh, all right. Yeah, he's he's forty three. Three. Oh, 44. wow. Um, he's probably one of the best tobacco guys of his age, broadly recognized. Um, and these guys go into their eighties and nineties. I mean, these guys go forever. It's not like. But it uh, takes years to be able to get an apprentice to be able to step up. So, well, Est- it- Esteban has two sons, uh, Uraldi and Anthony. Uh, Uraldi has been in, he's been working both of them have been working in and around the factory since they were in their teens uh Uraldi recently spent about a year in the states on the retail side working oh, in new york to kind of to, to get understand that side of the business right um you know sometimes you just can't replicate it because you know sometimes this the next generation has it so easy they never have to go through the struggle of doing a lot of the, you know that's why you see all these when someone talks about a master blender um, to me, Master Blender is, a, is an honor, honorarium that your peers put on you. It's not a label you give yourself. So if you, if you ask most people in the cigar business and you say, name, name a Master Blender, they're going to name someone like Benji. But yeah. if you went and asked Benji, Benji's never had a business card that said Master Blender. You're right. Right. Um, or Eladio Diaz or those kinds of guys. And one thing those guys all had in common is they've done, they've worked in They've worked in the farms. They've worked in the curing barns. They've worked in pre-industry. They've worked in the factories. They've spent time on the U.S. in the retail side. They've done the production. They've done the whole spectrum of things for decades. So the problem in these days is not very many people get that broad of an experience. If you're a farm guy, you end up staying a farm guy. If you're a pre-industry guy, you stay a pre-industry guy. If you're a guy who goes out into the stores and works on marketing side of the blend side – 
you never understand really what happens at the farm level. Um, you have people like AJ or Pepin. You know, Pepin was a master roller, mm. and he knew tobacco at that level. But then when he started making cigars um, in Esteli, and then later when he moved to Cayocho, that became a, a new thing for him, not just making cigars, but actually working the tobacco and selecting tobacco because someone else did that for him before that. Now, after he had the factory for a decade or, or whatever, he's doing it on every level. And, you know, I would say he's pretty close. Him and Jaime are pretty close to being masters at their craft. Um, but Jaime, even at 40 years old or whatever, is probably 20 years away from doing that. Wow. Um, some, of the, some of the Latin guys do a much better job at secession planning than others. Some people, their kids just aren't interested. We were talking about yesterday someone whose yeah. kids just weren't capable or weren't interested. So secession planning is a big deal for us. Hopefully uh, someone can carry that forward. Um, but like you said, it's, it's becoming less and less of an attractive business to be in. If you're smart enough and hardworking enough to be the next Esteban, you, you're probably smart enough and hardworking <coughs> enough to be great in a lot of things. So maybe tobacco is not the thing yeah. for you. But his job isn't just to make the next blend but it's to keep the blend of the existing brands because some things have to be tweaked because the that's, next crop becomes that's his That's his primary role. Correct. His, his primary role is managing the, the team in Nicaragua, which is a skill set in and of its own. He's been doing it since 1997. Um, but more than anything, he's the guy that can look at, a, at tobacco and go, that's what I need. He can look at 50 bales of tobacco so, and go... So he's the buyer of the raw tobacco? He, he selects all of our tobacco. He, he's responsible for maintenance of the blends, forecasting to make sure we don't run out, understanding the, the yields and the economics. Um, because like anything else, I think people believe that he sits around putting two, three t different tobaccos together, smoking it, and that's the whole day, every day, that's it. And that's only just to make a new blend, but... All this other stuff goes into it. An example, an example of what would happen, let's say we blend a cigar like Whiskey Rebellion that has Condega tobacco in it. The year we first started making Whiskey Rebellion, the Condega tobacco was very full-bodied. So we were using a Viso. Um, it had tons of flavor. Sometimes we would even sneak down into the Seco, high-texture Seco, because it just had a lot of dominant flavor to it. Two years later, that Condega tobacco from any source is not like that. So you, we had, you have to constantly change the blend in order to keep it the same. Are you just going up on priming at that point? You go up you, on priming. You, may have to you get use, use smaller leaves because smaller leaves have more texture. Yeah. So there's a lot of things you do. But um, year to year or even, even bulk to bulk, you, you have to adjust um, the, the bunching process and also the, the tobacco to make sure that the blend is the same. You ever smoke a cigar? And, and I know you guys smoke a lot of stuff that isn't your own. But you ever smoke a cigar and then that cigar becomes the inspiration for another project. Not that you're going to copy the blend, but it I just... I would say everything we've ever done is from that, right? So uh, I'm a big fan of the floor. I'm a big fan of the original Camacho diplomas. Um, that was kind of the flavor profile that we were going for with Cro-Magnon. I, I kind of, before I knew anything about tobacco, I told Mike, this is what I want. It was actually a cigar that Christian Aroa had made uh, that I was selling. Um, we called it the League of Three One. He went down to Nicaragua. Esteban's like, yeah, I could do this. He made a couple, but he said, I think I could do better than this. When he came back, I'm like, yeah, this is better. Um, the Ecuador, Connecticut, really, I would say, is inspired more than anything by the work Esteban did on La Traviata. 
Um, it's a twist on that using a little bit different tobaccos. Um, the, the Atapadaka, like I said, really from the 50-year Tarano. Um, the um, Wonderlust was really based on, uh, there's a little machine-made cigar that the Schuster family makes um, that is Cuban tobacco with, with a Modafina uh, wrapper, and it's just brilliant for a small uh, machine-made. And then walking through his tobacco inventory, you see all the tobaccos he has and it's like, okay, you use that, we use that. You use this, we use that. Can we get that from you? Can you get us this kind of wrapper? We're going to make a blend out of that. So everything we do is, there's almost nothing original in the cigar business, no matter what anyone tells you. Yeah, yeah. everything is rinse and repeat. Do you find it easier to work on a short format cigar versus something that's longer or thicker? Short format cigars are harder with dominant wrappers because the wrapper takes over the, the blend or thinner cigars. Uh, Lancero is probably the hardest cigar to roll uh, just because you have to fit a, like a Neanderthal Lancero. You have to fit a lot of tobacco into a small format. Um, stronger cigars are a lot easier to make because you can cover up a lot of errors. Yeah. You know, rough edges like the Cameroon. That's the hardest project we've worked on because you want to to accentuate the, the Cameroon because that's the expensive component. That's what you're working with. Right. And in Nicar and again, Nicaragua tobaccos, it's hard to use Nicaraguan tobaccos and not overwhelm the Cameroon. So there's a lot of tricks you do to, to, to make that happen, but that's probably been the hardest project. Is there a Nicaraguan cigar that uses Cameroon? Yeah, uh, Oliva G, oh, I yeah. think, is, okay. is one. Um, you, think, you think it's a re real Cameroon that's on there? Not yeah, no, Ecuadorian it's African Cam Cameroon. All right. Yeah, I mean... When you go over to, in fact, that's where we got our. I probably shouldn't even say, but that's where we got the wrapper right. for this. Is this this old uh, small and it's all small uh, yeah. wrapper from Gilberto? They're now growing it in Honduras. I don't know if you know that they're growing Cameroon there. It, yeah. So you're seeing other people taking that seed and saying, "Let's try to grow it somewhere else because it's priced out out of out of, out of whack." Well, going back to your question, sorry to interrupt, but. We actually, most of the blending that we do is in the 5x56 format, which is why we make that cigar in most of the lines that we do, right? right. So because, like, I'm a 46 guy, so, you know, if someone offered me a cigar, if I was going to buy a cigar, you know, I would look for, a, you know, that, that 46 by 3, you know, 5 and 3 quarters, because um, <clears throat> that's my comfort zone, right? Yeah. I think that's a good, you know, cigar size to smoke on. Um, but anyway, so because it's not necessarily in my comfort zone, we actually go up in sizes because if, like, if you can narrow it down in a smaller size, it's, it's lots it's of flavor. Easier. Yeah, it's, it's just, it, it just hits on all cylinders. But then when you go up to a larger size and it's out of your comfort zone or your wheelhouse, like then when you kind of nail it down, you kind of, you have a broader perspective of how that's going to smoke, right? Well, it's harder to make really flavorful big cigars because it dilutes out in the large size. Like a 6 by 60 is actually... If you wanted to, to make it really interesting, like our Cro-Magnum, we orig originally released it a 6x60, but we narrowed it down to a 4.5x60, and that's the only size that has a different internal ratio because the 60 just – Just have demands to, so much tobacco. It does, and, and you have to – you lose – it's easy to, to go off of the path when you start adding a lot of filler because now – the wrapper is such a little part, such a small part of the ratio. You have to get some of that, like you have to get some of the sweetness from the broadleaf back in the filler. So we use a little bit more jalapa, for example, in the filler of that one. But um, it, it's a, you know it's a it's a very blending is a is a is a process, not an event. 
you don't you don't go down to Nicaragua for three days and blend a cigar and then raise your hands and then come back and tell everybody how great of a blender you are. Blending happens every single day at every table over so, years. Skip, how about uh, combustion? Do you know pretty well based on what you're selecting that this will burn well, or do you ever hit a snag with that particular aspect? Yeah, it's combustion and aroma. So we talk a lot about the flavor p- p- part of blending, but there is a pretty standard formula of, you know, one Lajero, one Viso, one Seco, or, you know, two Secos, two Visos, or if you use a thick wrapper, you generally have to use a thin binder. There's, there's like some thumb rules for blending that if you don't follow these rules, it won't work. Right. Every cigar must have priming on all three things to burn, have aroma, and flavor. Well, a lot of, a lot of Cuban cigars don't have um, higher primings in general. That's but that's why they. Well, I won't get into Say Cuban it. cigars. Uh, I don't want to get you uh, arrested <laughs> yeah. in Cuba again. Hey, it's all right. <laughs> but yeah, you, I got myself in a lot of trouble. Skip, Skip went on that original trip with me uh, to Cuba uh, the first time I went, and um, I had wrote. If you ever looked it up, Dave's trip to Cuba. Uh, it enraged the folks in <laughs> Cuba over it. Uh, I think we're friends again. Uh, I went back a bunch of times anyway, but um, what I said was accurate, right? Just for the record. Yeah, uh, there was only a couple things that you said that I would have said a different way. Yeah, but I should have said yeah. most of it a different way. <laughs> I maybe wouldn't have got myself into trouble. But I, I don't think there was anything you said. Yeah, that uh, wasn't accurate. Fact, yeah. I do, I do fact check you on a regular basis. Yes, I know that. <laughs> I, but your Cuban blog thing was pretty factual. Yeah. And, um, but it is what it is. And I, listen, I, I say that stuff uh, as constructive criticism to them, that they should make those changes. And uh, when I did go back, some of those changes were done. So, I'm, you know, n- not that I just give my opinion of what it is and... Uh, whether they choose to or not. I know the U.S. market when it comes to cigars. I've been in it for a long time, uh, and I sell the product. So uh, with, without them asking, I wrote it, uh, and then it turned into after that, or what do you think about this, this, this? Good. That's the, the you know, we're, I, won't, I, I am looking forward to the day Cuban cigars are illegal because I'll be selling them. I would like them to be improved because I have to deal with the consumer on the other end, and I think the U.S. consumer isn't going to be like the European consumer and uh, accept that mediocrity of that product. Yeah, nobody's going to accept for too long paying $35 for a cigar and then having it not burn or draw. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it comes down to. So any more questions for for Skip out here with the audience? Everybody is being a little shy, but... We, we got plenty. So, so Dave had the question about uh, the firecracker. Yes. Yeah, so he, he asked, um, how did it all start? Um, I came up with this idea of um, a short format cigar, a thick, short cigar. And it started with a, with a, a cigar I called a Fat Boy. And it was a, 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 um, a thick ring gauge, three-inch cigar. And we sold it for a while and uh, just in the stores. Uh, and it was going well. Um, and uh, I had him on my desk, and um, Jose Oliver, of all people, came into the store one day, and uh, I had another salesperson I was dealing with, and I said, uh, you know, let me finish with him, and then I'll be with you, and uh, he said, okay, uh, what are those that were sitting on the desk? And I said, here, and I handed him a couple of them and a little short cigar so he could smoke, and uh, that later turned into nub, believe it or not, and what I saw, he asked, 
you know, uh, I want to take this thing and go national with it or whatever, and I'm not going to do it unless you uh, approve. And I said, yeah, very nice of you to ask. Okay, do it. So Nub was formed and went national. And as I looked at the success of Nub, which I had right in my hands, and I didn't go national with it, I had this idea of that of a short, uh, thinner cigar, but in the firecracker form with a fuse on it, I thought it would look cool. And I said, I actually want to go national with this thing. I, I, I've come out with many, many cigar brands over many years. So I have a lot of uh, cigar brands that I own. Uh, knock on wood, as this FDA thing happens, I have a lot of things that are grandfathered in that I can continue to put out. So, uh, but looking at that success, I'm like, I, I just never, I take these brands and have my fun in my playground with them. Uh, let me try to go national with something and see what I can do. And uh, it became this firecracker project. So the first person I went to, uh, and I believe 2004, Ed, with Pepin, yeah. with Pepin, right? Well, I first went to Pete Johnson with it, and I said, this is what I want to do. And I, you know, <laughs> he was known as the guy that had the fuller-bodied stuff at the time, um, and he was hot. And I said, you know, maybe you'll have fun with this, and what do you think? And um, he said, it's ridiculous. No, I'm not going to do it. It's a, it's a terrible idea. And I said, all right, and um, sat on it for maybe another year. And as luck would have it, we had Pepin Garcia... Uh, in the store actually doing rolling demonstrations. This is early on Pepin. And uh, nobody knows him, and we're, we're getting the word out of who this guy is. And I had met him years previous to this in Nicaragua uh, working at uh, Casa Fernandez. Eduardo Fernandez. Yeah, Eduardo Fernandez. And um, so he came up, and uh, while he was rolling, I said, you know, make that cigar shorter. And he makes it shorter, and then I asked him to put the tail on the end of it, and he makes a little tail, and I said, much larger. He makes a much larger tail. And then I wrapped the band around it, and I said, this is how I want it. And he looked at it and said, I was loco, crazy. And uh, I, I said, well, this is what I want. And he said, how many do you want? And I said, 200 boxes. And he said, I'll do it for you. And he's starting out, and he, he wants the business or whatever. And he said, okay, I'll do it. And it actually had the Don Papin Garcia band on it. And um, we would go through 200 boxes at a time on a continuing basis. Uh, they call me up and say, people are calling up all the time on this brand. So I said, uh, oh, good. You know, let's keep it going. And it was going good for a while. And then all of a sudden, uh, a cigar appeared on the market that wasn't ours from the same factory. And I got mad over it. And I said, you know, it's one thing getting ripped off. Uh, and so a lot of my crazy ideas, as crazy as they are, became successful and they get ripped off. This right? is where Dave says, okay, are you sure you want to do this? And then 30 years later, he's still <laughs> right. not selling your cigars. <laughs> so he, he ends up doing it. I'm mad about it. I pull the production and bring the production somewhere else. Uh, it's because it's mine. It can be whatever it's going to be called, especially at the time. And it becomes firecracker. And... Uh, they sit down and talk to me and, you know, what do we do about this? And I said, it was wrong for you to do this. And, uh, you know, if you want to lock me into some of the uh, profit of this. And he said, absolutely not. And I said, okay. <laughs> so we're done with uh, production of that. Uh, in between, actually, Pete Johnson had come back to me and said, I blew it. I never thought that this was going to work. And let's do a project together like this. And we did the M80. And we did that two or three times, I think, 
the M80 project, uh, which was just a bigger firecracker. So it becomes a different thing. Um, and, and, and what's your favorite firecracker? You said. What's my favorite one? I, I would say Fratello. Fratello. Right? Fratello. Fratello. No, it's not because they all sell in a day, yeah. you know, um, and, and it's because of it's just a limited fun project. Nobody's making a killing on the thing. It's low priced, but it's just a fun thing to do. And um, but it, they're made to be full bodied. And Pepin was the guy doing full full bodied at that time. Uh, next year, it's Fratello. It's, it's you guys. It's soccer. It's. You know, Fratello that made in Hoya de Nicaragua, it, it became, you know, who's the full-bodied guy? When I'm looking for a cigar for myself, I'm, you know, I go to Davidoff and I go to people that make milder Atabay. cigars, yeah. right, Atabay. And, and uh, that's the stuff I like that is, is more to my liking. But listen, I sell cigars for everybody. So it's funny that you tell that. So, Mi Carita is my favorite, uh, like I was sharing, but <clears throat> it's funny you tell that story about him going, that's the dumb idea. And then it turns out to be, you know, yeah. a 10-year. So you know Jim Robinson that was working sure. with, that works with Oscar. So Jim used to visit our factory early on when it was behind Esteban's house. He'd come he'd come over there and, and uh, one day he shows up with Byron from the, from Oscar's factory and he says, "I got this brilliant idea." And then he shows us this cigar with the leaf on the yeah. outside of it, and we're both looking at him like, "That's the ugliest cigar I've ever seen." He goes, "No, but it's packaging. It maintains the oils, and this becomes the cello." And me and Esteban are like, why would you waste a perfectly good piece yeah. of tobacco? That's literally the dumbest idea ever. He goes, no, you guys could do it. I'm like, we would never do that. Yeah. And then now, <laughs> said, oh, now, now, you know, he's in like twice as many stores as we are, and that thing just flies off the yeah. shelf at ten dollars each. Remember, I, Jonathan, we were at the trade show yeah. one year, and he comes over and says, "What do you think of this?" And I'm looking at what and. Taking a pot, and I go, "Oh my God, we're all over this!" And we bought in deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this cigar was good. And, and every time I every time I see Jim, I'm like, uh, "Yeah, I still think that's a pretty dumb idea." But what do I know? <laughs> so, so people will. What do they call it, Barry? It's too too gimmicky, right? Too gimmicky. Too much of a gimmick. Yeah. So they'll they'll look at stuff like that, and and, and I love it. I love gimmicky things and creative ideas of. I've been selling for 34 years rolled up tobacco leaves. If you got another hook or something to do with this thing and have fun with, like Pete does the monster edition and the different things that came out over the years, I love it. It stimulates the consumer. Yeah. A little attention to it. Yep. You made a gigantic big cigar, right? Yeah, so <laughs> we, we made a hundred. So uh, I was drunk in Managua, yeah. and and I, I was surprise. I was talking to a guy from the Pellis family about making me a really large Florida Cana bottle, but I said it has to be like the Grey Goose bottle or the wine bottle. It has to be exactly the same bottle, exactly the same label. It has to have the exact same you know material inside. It has to be the real deal, just a huge version of it. And he goes, why? Why would you ever do that? I'm like, so I could have the largest bottle of Florida Cana. It's easy. And then I, you know, maybe I could just tump it over, have yeah. like a little cradle or something. And and he's like, no, that'd be really stupid. So I get back to the factory and I said, what is theoretically the largest cigar we could make? And the real way. Yeah. And so um, I said, what is the largest wrapper leaf we could get? And there's these these uh, broadleaf things called elephant ears. Yeah. They're, they're not super common, but they're about that big. Yeah. And um I said let's make a Cro-Magnon. So we had these molds made that were like 234 ring gauge, 10 inches long was as long as we could do it. And um 
it was like this big around and, and, and we made two guys bunched at the same time, one binder or two binders, one wrapper, exact same proportions as our normal cigar. Yeah. And I said, we could just make these and then we'd give them to the retailers because at the time, John Drew would be like giving shoes out and, and molds and stuff. I said, when we go to the show, for everybody who orders at the show, we can just give them one of these. Just to put in their, you know, as a, as a, because I'd seen a lot of really long, big cigars. Yeah. And I've seen the one Gran Habano that they had to uh, on with a truck or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, I want to make a cigar the real way, not BS filler, but real. Yeah. And, and we'll make a hundred of them and give them to the first hundred people who put in a certain size order or whatever. And when it, when it turned out was, I said, you know, it'd be better for us to do it in the same proportions as the mandible. So that's where it ended up being 10 by 133. So this was in 2012, I think. Mm-hmm. We made 100 of them. Then people started smoking them. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> that was never supposed to happen. Yeah. So well, The worst part was I started getting text messages from guys going, hey, I'm smoking this. Yeah, videos. And how do I get some? And it's like uh, uh, Brooks from, from Half Will actually rated it. Oh, God. And I'm like, okay, great. How'd you do on that? And it was like a, maybe one of the lowest scores ever, yeah. not surprisingly. And I said, well, it is, a, it is a perfectly good cigar with the same quality tobacco. It just is impossible. You don't. You can't create the physics to smoke it properly. Yeah. But two days ago, Cigar Aficionado. So when we won the 15 Cigar of the Year, or yeah. when we were honored as the number 15 Cigar of the Year with Cigar Aficionado, something Saka has never uh, achieved, by the way. <laughs> Little dig there. Nor will happen, no matter how great the cigar is. Unfortunately. So he got there the, is politics. So we had a, in this group the Degenerate Weasels. Someone did a, a survey of what's your favorite cigar of all time, and Saka won. The number one cigar in our group. Ah! And so he won't let me forget that. So I keep pointing out to him that he doesn't have a cigar aficionado trophy. Do they give you one? Yeah, it's like a plaque. Oh, really? It's in our file room somewhere. (laughs) So uh, when we won that, I sent sent the guys at Aficionado one of these cigars saying, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek, like, hey, we appreciate your, you know, highlighting our brand, even though we don't advertise. And, you know, we have a lot of respect for you guys, to Dave Savona and... And then, um, you know, maybe this will be the cigar of the year next year, like jokingly. <laughs> so now, two years later, uh, six years after the femur, 100 femurs were made, they put a video on Instagram of this cigar that has like 13,000 comments or oh something. Oh, my God. And, of course, now, yesterday, my phone's blowing up. How do I get this? Where do I get this? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I'm never doing that again. Never do it again. <laughs> but it's fun, right? Interesting little game. And that that's the thing of the Firecracker. It was just a fun project. And, um, you know, you contacted me. Every manufacturer that has been of the Firecracker, they contact me. It's not like I'm begging them. They're, they're, they're coming to us and saying we would like to do it. And some things don't make sense and some things make sense. Uh, the idea is a, a full-bodied cigar. And, and I, I, I don't get to... Try it. I have nothing to do with the blending. I'm not teaming up with them and then give my ideas. I give a criteria, which some do exactly <laughs> like I ask, and some break from it. Uh, but it is what it is. This is the longest 10 minute interview. Yes, it's a 10 minute. So, so let's call it quits. But thank you. Yeah, this, this is, is the first ever. And I, I think we're going to sponsor this going forward. Wonderful. Yeah. Beautiful. Nice. Yeah. It's the cash register. Are we finished? All right, so uh, thanks, everybody, and uh, we'll have an intro and an outro to this sometime, but uh, this is it. I look forward to it, and the only way you're going to get it, well, if you're listening to it, you know. You subscribe to the Cigar Authority uh, podcast because there's no video portion of this. It's just audio only of um, 
uh, the after show or whatever we're going to call it. So we'll figure out that next time. So this is the first one. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Dave. Bye-bye.